Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, Eastern family. Thanks for tuning us in. From 1927 until Eastern's last flight in 1991, the men and women have lived the history of our great airline. We are presenting these memories and stories with our radio show, Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. We can't even imagine how, in the early days, the pilots flew open cockpit mail planes in all types of weather with very little or no navigational equipment except light beacons, landmarks, and other visual cues to reach their destinations. Many of the early pioneers even lost their lives to get the mail through. Some were even heroes to people along the mail route from New York to Miami by spotting fires of homes and businesses, then turning their mail planes to the affected property, circling and alerting those on the ground about the impending danger. 
This was a type of concern Eastern people displayed over the years. We read a story of June a couple of episodes ago, and the same concern led June Hatton to pay for an airline ticket for a soldier returning home to be with his family. He could not afford the cost, so she paid for the flight. It's typical of the Eastern employee. I remember receiving medical help when I first was hired by Eastern and still on probation at six months with the company. Eastern paid all of my wife's hospital bills when she had a stroke and gave me the time off that I needed. This was the company we worked for, ladies and gentlemen. I'm more convinced than ever, looking back at those wonderful years we had with Eastern, that the legend will live on long after we are gone. With the memories we share every Monday evening and stories yet to be written, Eastern will not be forgotten even by our descendants. If you have a story to tell, we want to hear from you. So stick around to the end of this broadcast and we'll tell you how to go about getting it on the air. Now, Linda and Harry, let's tell the story of Eastern as told by its people. We've all heard the old expression, don't get mad, get even. Uh, perhaps uh, you've been in a job situation where you and a co-worker were supposed to share a job equally, but because the co-worker had seniority on you, he or she left you to do most of the work. That's kind of what happened in this story here, the story of Captain Dozier Morpheus from the best of repartee. Back in the middle and late 30s, before the days of ATC control towers, flight following, and the now everyday annoyances that plague pilots that the long night flights were an excellent place for some of the more rank-conscious and selfish captains to catch up on their sleep at the expense of their subservient, tough, nonetheless resentful co-pilots. There was one such individual whom I'll call Captain Dozier Morpheus to protect his anonymity. For the same reason, I will identify his co-pilot as Milden Meek. Old Dozy, as Captain Morpheus was usually called, flew a trip that originated in New York at 10 p.m. At about midnight, it departed Washington for a long four-and-a-half-hour flight to Jacksonville and then continued on to Miami to where it arrived with the morning sun shining into the droopy eyes of the very tired crew. It was Old Dozy's habits to fly the short hop to Washington during the hours that his usual sleeping routine was not being violated by the hour. As soon as the takeoff from Washington had been completed, he would drop his seat all the way down, run it as far back as it would go, and dim the lights to a mere flicker. flicker. Then he would wrap himself into a blanket cocoon and command his co-pilot to wake me up before we get to Jacksonville and go into a deep, profound journey into the netherland of somnolence. Poor old Milden Meek, his eyelids feeling like two hot stove lids and consuming staggered amounts of what passed for coffee, guided his aluminum steed through the light night gloom until many hours later. He would gently tap Old Dozy on the shoulder and announce, We're coming up on Jacksonville. Thereupon, Captain Morpheus, refreshed by his long nap, would stretch, readjust his seat, and take over again to make the landing. This same routine continued for month after month with co-pilot Meek developing an ever-deepening hatred for Captain Morpheus. 
Finally, one late autumn night, old Dozy took off at Washington, climbed up through a thin layer of clouds, and leveled off the DC-2 at 2,000 feet. He went through his usual preparations and told his patient, though resentful assistant, just stay on top of this cloud layer and wake me up before we get to Jacksonville. Yes, sir, Captain, answered Milden, just barely able to keep the disgust and hatred from showing. Hours later, when the last quarter moon beginning to hide itself on the western horizon, a strangely alert co-pilot, Meek, tapped his soundly sleeping superior on the shoulder and announced, Captain Morpheus, we're nearly at Jack's. Old Dozy slowly came back into the real world. He belched loudly, scratched himself thoroughly, stretched, gave a prodigious yawn, and looked out through the windshield. The plane was sailing through the night sky. The tops of the clouds were still about 500 feet below them. The altimeter needle was glued on the 2,000-foot mark, and through the headphones could be heard the steady drone of the Encore signal from the Jacksonville range. Okay, mildly, he announced, I got it. Now let's get one fact on the record. For all of his thoughtlessness, Dozier Morpheus was a very fine pilot. He was calm, smooth, possessed a great feel for the plane, had been flying for a long time. So when he took over the controls and began to make his approach into Jacksonville, he flew the plane in the way it was supposed to be flown. He passed over the range station at precisely 2,000 feet on the altimeter, made a smooth turn to the east, and pinned down the outbound leg with a single correction. He made his procedure turn at exactly 1,500 feet, crossed the range, on final at exactly 700 feet and let down into the needle on the altimeter to show directly on 300 feet. Nothing could be seen but the gray, opaque mist. There was not the slightest indication of light on the ground. Mist approach, yelled Captain Morpheus. Up gear. We'll go back out and try it again. The same precise procedure was followed with exactly the same result at the final approach altitude. There was nothing but clouds visible. If old Dozy had been a little more observant, he might have detected a strange, almost self-satisfied smile flickering over Milden's usually bland countenance. But Captain Morpheus was in no mood to observe subtleties. Trip three to Jacksonville, I be bellowed Morpheus into the radio mic. What kind of a ceiling have you got down there? No change for the past three hours came back the response. We're still reporting 9,512 miles. It was then that Captain Dozier Morpheus began to understand what had, had been made, he had been made the victim of. As instructed by his captain, co-pilot Meek had stayed above the cloud deck, but in order to do so, it had been necessary for him to make an almost imperceptible climb ever since leaving Washington. Instead of cruising at 2,000 feet, they were actually at 12,000 feet. At 12,000 feet, the altimeters in use in those days presented almost exactly the same appearance that they would at 2,000. The only difference being the position of a tiny little pointer that recorded having passed 10,000 feet. This little pointer was seldom observed because of the rarity with which planes ever got to go above 10,000 feet. In this case, O'Dozy failed to observe it. Milden, seeing an opportunity to get a measure of revenge for his many sleepless, lonely nights, did not bother to alert his captain to the fact that they were at such a high level. Thus, when the approach was made, instead of describing descending to two, two to 300 feet as called for, Old Dozy was descending to 10,300 feet. 
which was right in the middle of a cloud layer which obscured the ground in the same way that low clouds would hide the ground in the normal approach. Milton Meek knew that his method of getting even placed him in no jeopardy. Because if Captain Morpheus made a complaint, it would have been an admission that he had been sleeping, which was a real no-no, even in those easy-going days. Not only that, he knew that if the, if the word ever got out on the airline that he had missed two approaches with a 9,500-foot ceiling, the ragging he would get would be too high a price to pay to get back at Milden Meek. The matter was soon forgotten. Later on, Milden contrived his own way to combat captains with propensity for sleeping in the cockpit. When the captain announced that he was going to take a nap, Milden would answer, Sure, go ahead, but if you f wake up and find me sleeping, punch me. It worked every time. This winter, you need all the summer you can get. With Eastern Airlines' new personalized vacation planning, you can have a vacation as unique as you are. Talk to your travel agent or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar. Get the most summer this winter from Eastern. The Wings of Man. Let's take a trip down memory lane. In this case, memory lane has another name. 36th Street, Miami, Florida. Most of us who work for Eastern Airlines spent countless hours studying, sleeping, and sweating on this famous aviation street to become the great employees this airline was known for. This article was recorded and submitted by uh, Captain Steve McDonald, historian of the EAL radio show website. Steve writes, 5600 Northwest 36th Street is one block east of Red Road. It is west of the two old Pan American hangars. It has to be that all-mirror glass tall building that I think Air Florida occupied. The CIA was in there. Customs, Rich Airlines, I forget who else. I'll put on my thinking cap, but as I recall, the southwest corner of Lejeune Road originally belonged to Curtis or Balanca or some other aircraft manufacturer. I forgot who. As I recall, they built the Quonset Hut hangar where cash sales was later located. They later let the property go to Delta, who ultimately swapped with Eastern to get the hangar just east of the 36th Street Terminal. There were two hangars located there. The other belonged to TAN, T-A-N, Airlines. Those hangars were reacquired by Eastern after all airlines moved to the, 30, uh, the 20th Street Terminal. In those hangars was a place where the 720, the Electra, and DC-9 simulators were, plus maintenance parts storage was also located. Once EAL required the property, acquired the property that we all remember from Lejeune westward, the corner had a large water tank. There was parking and the long DC-4 hangars were built. That was the building that had the huge red Fly Eastern Airlines sign on the roof. The DC-4 hangar went from what was later Building 16 to the engine overhaul facility, a building built by Eastern. 
Across the passageway from the overhaul building was a credit union and the cafeteria. It had large fans blowing at the entry doors to keep the flies out of the cafeteria. No A.C. in those days, folks. Upstairs, directly across from the credit union, was the main radio shop. Outside the west side of the cafeteria was the entry off 36th Street that we knew as Gate 3. West of Gate 3 along 36th Street was the new eastern-only terminal, about 1951, and public parking and the ramp. This two-story building was later the training building that most of us went to after the 20th Street Terminal was opened about 1959. After the 20th Street Terminal opened, a new long hangar facility was built in the old ramp area from the Gate 3 roadway west to a vacant lot, which later became the L-1011 hangar. West of the 1011 hangar became employee parking. South was Route 1, or Route 1 taxiway, and runway 9 left, 27 right. North of the L-1011 hangar and north of the former Delta and Tan hangars was built the Hartley Building on 36th Street with the Manuals Library and the Post Office adjacent. When I was a kid... Red Road went across the airport. The airport and runways were between Lejeune and Red Road, 9 right and runway 12, belonged to the Army, west of the Red Road area. Broken Skull Skull Airport was an east-west operation located today approximately in the northwest corner where Corrosion Corner was located when we called it that, submitted by Captain Steve McDonald. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern shuttle has always been very efficient. It's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. It was after his marriage that another woman came into his life in a completely professional sense, and not even Adelaide was to give him more devotion or personal loyalty. Her name was Margaret Shepard. She was a Canadian who came into the U.S. seeking secretarial employment and answered an ad in the Detroit newspaper for a girl with secretarial experience to work with an automobile manufacturing firm. Rickenbacker was in Europe attending an auto show, and Miss Shepard was interviewed by an office manager at the Rickenbacker Motor Car Company. Diminutive, assertive, and personable, she made a good impression, and he hired her, assigning her to the advertising manager, Roy Pelletier, on a temporary basis. Pelletier knew the ad was aimed at recruiting a personal secretary for Rickenbacker, but he was so taken with her efficiency that he tried to talk her into staying with him, admitting to her that she was supposed to go to work for the captain when he returned. Margaret sought the advice of a friend at an employment agency who told her, wait until the captain gets back, and she did, and thereby changed the course of her own life, 
She was to stay with EVR just three months short of 50 years. When Captain Eddie, with Captain Eddie, she achieved the ultimate in a boss-secretary relationship. He trusted her implicitly, and she never betrayed that trust. At first it was Miss Shepard, and then Margaret, and finally Sheppy, the nickname the Rickenbacker boys gave her. In years to come, she was Sheppy to everyone, and some people at Easter never even knew her, first, her real first name. Only once did she come close to leaving, and that was shortly after she became a secretary. She began getting other job offers, some of them extremely attractive, and Sheppy was a girl of the spade-calling variety. Do you think I'm going to be satisfactory, she asked EVR pointedly. She still remembers that he seldom answered a question directly. His usual response was to ask a question himself. Thus, I'll ask you a question. Why do you want to know? Because I'm being offered other jobs at more money. He looked at her from under those bushy awnings that passed for eyebrows. I can't promise you a raise, young lady, not in three months, six months, or even a year. But if you continue as you are, you'll have no regrets. She never talked of quitting again, not even when she discovered that galley slaves had shorter work days than either Captain Eddie or the people that worked for him. He always came in at 8 a.m. sharp and expected her there, too. Later, when he moved to New York, he would issue profane imprecations against the Gothamites' work habits, which called for never getting to one's desk earlier than 9 a.m. Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston, and a unique new dining service is worth writing home about. Choose from a selection of superb entrees like lobster Newburgh, filet mignon with Bordelais sauce, prepared as you like it. Eastern 727 Jet, quiet as a library. The smartest way to leave town? Come fly with Eastern. Here's another story written by Captain Steve McDonald, historian of the EAL website. He wrote, I was once in Floyd Hall's office at 10 Rockefeller Center. On the wall, in a frame, was a portion of one coat sleeve with four stripes. His hat emblem and wings from TWA. Captain Mem Weir shared the story that when he retired, he was invited into Hall's office for a presentation. Hall asked Mem if he had any questions, and Mem said, You know, Mr. Hall, we all hear about the big picture. Will you show me the big picture? Hall reached into his desk drawer and pulled out an antique key suitable for a 19th century jail door. He gave Mem the key and directions to get to the big picture room. So Mem went out into the main corridor at Ten Rock to the end of the corridor and through a door into another smaller, less well-lit corridor. 
He went to the end of that corridor through a door into a narrow corridor that was all also badly lit. He got to the end of that corridor, and there was the door for which the key opened. Mem went into the room and switched on the single light bulb in this room and discovered that the light bulb was the only thing in this otherwise vacant room. That was the big picture. Eastern Airlines presents a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. This story is going to give us an intimate look into the life of Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. It comes from the book, From the Captain to the Colonel, written by Robert J. Serling. If you're not familiar with this author, Robert J. Serling was the older brother of Rod Serling, who we all know from the Twilight Zone TV series. But Robert Serling spent his uh, writing career basically writing about aviation. He wrote several books about the avi aviation. He wrote a novel entitled The President's Plane is Missing, which was turned into a movie. But this uh, chapter is the 50s Climb and Descent. In most respects, the 50s were the golden decade for Eastern and Captain Eddie too. It was a 10-year period marked by expansion, continued profits, massive if not entirely wise fleet modernization, and the biggest merger in the airline's history to date. It also saw the first relaxing of EBR's iron grip, the final years of his presidency, but not his rule, and the worst decision he was to make in the quarter century he ruled Eastern. As the decade opened, he still was pursuing the same zigzag course which characterized his leadership, liberal one day and reactionary the next. He instigated a stock purchase plan for all employees, putting up an initial 100,000 shares of Eastern stock for sale to those with three or more years seniority at the attractive price at $13.50 a share. Yet he also could nod with chauvinistic satisfaction when a report was placed on his desk indicating that the airline in 1950 had almost completed its reversion to an all-male flight attendant corps. The culmination of his own edict banning the hiring of many more, many more women as replacements for departing stewardesses. He was not really anti-female. To the captain, it simply made no economic sense to permit the high rate of turnover among women flight attendants. This was a cost control item, and he set his policy accordingly. The fact that the vast majority of passengers in those days were men who preferred pretty girls was not listed on his bottom line. It may tax one's credulity that an airline president could be that indifferent to customers' desires, but it must be remembered that Rickenbacker was in the position of a successful author who can afford to ignore the critics. Eastern might be getting bad reviews, but Rickenbacker was laughing all the way to the bank. Those who did try to argue with him, fight him, or flatly oppose him were invariably stonewalled, stonewalled by EAL's profit figures. 
Furthermore, for every recalcitrant officer, he had a couple of hundred or more loyal employees who thought he could do no wrong. Two years in a row, Captain Eddy staged essay contests, which no one above a certain rank could enter. The first was on the subject, My Job and How I Like It. More than 90% of some 7,000 eligible employees submitted entries in hopes of winning such prizes as a four-door Buick, Pontiac, and Chevrolet sedans, washers, refrigerators, freezers, and radio phonographs. The next year, the contest was on how I can help make my company successful, and the entrants represented more than 82% of the workforce. The top three prizes, again, were Buick, Pontiac, and Chevrolet. The captain was still loyal to General Motors. It goes without saying that the winning entries stress virtues close to EVR's heart, such as diligence, hard work, loyalty, thrift, and dedication. Yet behind all this allegiance and homage to the captain was the average employee's belief in his leadership. Along with Northwest Don Nyrup, Rickenbacker may have been the most penurious president in airline history, but he also happened to be a battler for the dreams and goals he had for Eastern future. They knew it, too. Two years after the stock purchase plan went into effect, 60% of Eastern's employees owned 20% of the company's shares. This was more than loyalty. It was faith. And he tried hard not to let them down. By the start of the golden decade, his route expansion plans, some dating back to the war and earlier, had gelled into four areas. Puerto Rico, Canada, Mexico, and the West Coast via southern transcontinental route. Puerto Rico already was on the system, with non-stop New York San Juan service started in 1951 and supplementing the existing Miami San Juan route. Mexico City already should have been part of Eastern's route structure. Authorization between New Orleans and Mexico City had been granted in 1946. The service could not be started until the U.S.-Mexico bilateral air agreement was signed and these negotiations were to drag on for several years. The Southern Transcontinental Route bid turned from a dream to a nightmare. In 1951, the CAB, in one of its overly frequent efforts to please everyone without pleasing anybody, diluted the Southern Transcontinental Award into a conglomeration of interchanges and combinations. Eastern wound up with a route it had to share with Braniff and TWA. CAB granted at Miami Houston Authority. Under the award, EAL would connect with Braniff at Houston. Braniff would operate a Houston Amarillo leg connecting with TWA at Amarillo, and TWA would fly the Amarillo California segment. Braniff had no four engine equipment at the time, so Rickenbacker made a deal to, lose, to lease the Houston Amarillo route while Eastern and TWA agreed to interchange constellations in order to provide one plane service. Eastern crews would fly between Miami and Amarillo and TWA would furnish pilots and flight attendants the rest of the way. It was a makeshift arrangement at best, but it was the closest Eastern had yet come to transcontinental status, not to mention a major east-west route. Rickenbacker approved an expensive promotion campaign prior to the scheduled start of service plus a special pre-inaugural flight for VIPs, including the press, aboard one of Eastern's new super constellations. The Connie visited all the cities along the new route and ended up in Los Angeles, where Rickenbacker was to speak at a luncheon honoring the occasion. 
The dessert had just been served, and Rickenbacker was about to speak when someone handed him a telegram. The captain first turned pale and then red with anger. He didn't wait to be introduced, but rose and read the contents to the surprised audience. National Airlines had obtained a court order staying the effectiveness of the Southern Transcontinental Route Award. The infuriated Rickenbacker immediately charged that American was behind the legal maneuvering, but he may well have been firing from the hip. There is absolutely no evidence that American had anything to do with masterminding the roadblock. Baker, of National, largely relied on his airline's brilliant counsel, John Cross, who had found a loophole in the CAB's decision. Cross had asked for an injunction based on the fact that no interchange arrangement had been mentioned in the CAB hearings on the case. With no evidence of an interchange in the record, he argued, it was impossible for National to oppose it during the hearing themselves. The court's subsequent injunction sent the case back to the CAB for further hearings on a proceeding that dated back to 1946, and it was to drag on for another decade before it was finally settled in 1961. In the interim, Eastern received a first-class shafting when the board granted the California leg to TWA again, the Amarillo segment to Braniff once more, and gave EAL absolutely nothing with the strange explanation that no service was needed between Houston and Miami. This left TWA and Braniff with a supposed southern transcontinental route that covered only two-thirds of the distance between Miami and California. The inevitable happened. TWA and Brandon lost their collective shirts trying to operate an interchange over a truncated route and finally asked the CAB to abandon it. A third round of hearings ended with National getting Miami, New Orleans, Delta, New Orleans, Dallas, and American Dallas, Los Angeles via Phoenix. Eastern got nothing. In 1961, the board came up with its fourth decision. Continental was awarded Los Angeles, Houston, National received Miami Los Angeles Authority via Houston, Delta was awarded Dallas Los Angeles San Francisco, and Eastern got the crumbs. Dallas to New Orleans, Tampa, and Miami, putting it in the hopeless position of trying to compete against two rivals operating single plane service coast to coast. After a long business trip, the last thing you need is a hassle at the airport. That's why Eastern has one-time check-in. It's like going from the curb directly to your plane. Because Eastern can give you boarding passes for your entire trip the first time you check in. One-time check-in. Eastern's way of wishing you many happy returns. Eastern started out as an air mail transport operation back in the early days, but over the years Eastern expanded into many countries and many cities. Here we have a story from the book The Wings of Man, written by George Lyall, and it tells the history of inaugurating service to South America. The article is entitled Eastern Acquires a Hemisphere. The beginning of the 1980s turned out to be the start of the really hard times for the airlines. Our economy was being hit by a wave of inflation, making the dollar cheap and the buying of goods more expensive. Labor unions were responding with dire threats of strikes, and worse, if their wage demands were not met, the first of the large airlines to feel the full brunt of post-deregulation runaway expansion 
and union demands was Braniff International Airways, based in Dallas, Texas. While the airline had been started by an early pioneer named Tom Braniff, it had been taken over by a group of New York investors who quickly stood it on its ear with marketing innovations never before seen in the airline industry. CEO Hardy Lawrence had been brought in from Procter & Gamble, long known for its marketing savvy, and really let the industry have it. He started by breaking every tradition long held dear by the old guard, and then continuing with innovations that no one had dreamed of. Whoever thought it possible that in order to break out of the mold, an airline would paint each of its airplanes in a different color, or that its stewardess would have Gucci design uniforms and flamingo flaming colors, or that famous chefs would specially concoct its in-flight food, or that the entire airline and all of its personnel would be color-coordinated and made to fit into an overall design grid that would instantly establish a family identity for that person or piece of equipment named Braniff. The changes implemented by Lawrence and his marketing and advertising team were not only radical, but also most innovative. Braniff and Lawrence, helped by Mary Wells of the airline's advertising agency, and aided and abetted by the New York advertising media, quickly became the darlings of every passenger that wanted to be in. And their acceptance was reflected where it counted most, on the bottom line. Braniff was a total success. Soon Harding launched Braniff on a network expansion, the likes of which had not been seen before. He expanded the Latin America routes to the point that Braniff was now not only covering every capital city, but quite a number of the secondary cities as well. For example, Braniff flew not only to Bogota in Colombia, but also to Medellin and Cali. Braniff initiated transatlantic service as fast as it could procure equipment, and soon they were into the thick of the competition with daily schedules to Rome, Madrid, and Paris, with a fleet of orange-painted Boeing 747s. The Far East was not left behind, never mind that the traffic was slim on most of these routes, or that there would be keen competition from long-standing uh, foreign and American carriers. With finely honed marketing skills, nothing was impossible for Braniff. But the wholesale expansion and the changing economy started to catch up with Braniff, which had supported all of its moves on the faith of its bankers on the company's ability to do the impossible. By spring 1982, Braniff was in big trouble and just about everyone in the industry knew it. Eastern, for its part, had gone through another management change as a result of tensions with the board as to how and just when was Eastern going to turn a profit as some of its competitors? At the suggestion of Lawrence Rockefeller, a special search committee on the board had zeroed in on a recently released U.S. Air Force colonel, an astronaut who had led a party of three in Apollo 8 as the first man to circle the moon, and a man who had distinguished himself as the leader of the investigation as to the origin of the fire which had killed three men at the launch pad, stalling U.S. space flights for more than a year. His name was Frank Borman. I met Frank on his first visit to San Juan and established an instant rapport with him. He had a razor-sharp mind with an ability to retain names and information that was absolutely amazing. At his first general meeting of all management, he made a complete and detailed hour-long presentation of his analysis of what he thought was wrong with Eastern and what would be the necessary actions to establish corrections. He was impressive. His personal demeanor was completely void of any suggestion of acceptance 
of the trappings that generally accompany a man of his stature or the holder of the position which he held. He was plain spoken, and just as he dressed and spoke, what you saw was what you got. His wife Susan was equally charming and also completely devoid of any artificial pretensions. Frank gave me the feeling of one who did not make or need close friends to be successful, but those that he chose to be close to him remained close for the rest of their lives. The course Frank chose for Eastern was devoid of spectacular moves, such as the ones that Floyd Hall had selected when he became president, or much as Harding Lawrence now displayed at Braniff. It consisted of solid management moves that were sure to raise the hackles of the unions and cause frustration in some of the older management folks. But Frank was quick to make moves when he was convinced that it was the right move to make, without regard to the thinking of any manager that could have lent experience and maybe additional clarity to the decision. Soon he became known within Eastern as Quick Pistol Frank. One of the opportunities that Frank spotted, in which he played very close to the chest, was the possibility of acquiring the Braniff routes and much as Eastern had done with the Caribbean, using stateside feed to expand a new network into and out of Latin America. But he was not alone. Pan American, which saw an opportunity to consolidate its already strong position in Latin America, became an ardent suitor for the network. The battle, once begun, was intense and supplied daily fodder for the media, which covered the happenings as if it were the start of the Second World War. I was surprised to get a call from dispatch at around 1 o'clock in the morning of May 12, 1982, advising me that there would be a teleconference with Frank Borman at 7 that morning. I did not know what the subject was going to be as I had left the office the previous afternoon. I knew only that Frank had left for Dallas with Hardy Lawrence. Shortly after 6, I arrived at the conference room and was much surprised to see the principal vice presidents already there. At seven on the dot, Frank came on the speakerphone and without any introductory remarks, simply announced that he had successfully purchased for Eastern all of the Latin American routes belonging to Braniff. The purchase price was $32 million. He explained that the agreement, although signed by both Eastern and Braniff, was somewhat tenuous due to the tremendous political pressure being exerted by Pan Am through the State Department and the Latin American governments involved. For the reasons which I have explained, it is of the utmost importance that we get Eastern Airlines flying Braniff routes as soon as possible. I have taken a look at the Braniff schedule and there is a 7 o'clock departure tonight from Miami to Panama. I want one of our L-1011s on that flight, Frank explained in an excited voice. As a response, there was an explosion of reasons as to why this was impossible to accomplish in less than 12 hours. We can't get the permits on time, screamed one. We don't have spare parts in Panama to support the operation, piped the maintenance head. We don't have the weather for the route, the head dispatch control urgently advised. We don't have the aircraft certificated for that route, chimed in the regulatory guy. There are no arrangements for fueling or catering in Panama, called out the stores guy. Frank let the emotions emit for about a minute and then called a halt by asking, Lyle, you are... You are expert in international matters. Matters. Do you think it can be done? I replied that I thought that it would be tight, but not impossible. With that, Frank said, Gentlemen, Miami, I see a gathering of a group of people who have been very impressive in their accomplishments and their dedication. I know that they are smart and creative. 
but from what I hear now, they are practically unanimous in saying that what I am proposing will be an impossible task to accomplish. I would like to tell you that if the present group of motivated, creative, and determined people cannot accomplish what I'm asking, that in 12 hours I can have another equally motivated, creative, and determined group that will get the job done. Unsurprisingly, the Eastern flight on the Branham schedule departed for Panama that night exactly on schedule, and we were off on yet another one of the exciting adventures which makes our lives worth living. The next morning, my title was changed from Vice President of Florida Caribbean to Vice President International Operations. Immediately, we began to change the face of Braniff to Eastern, a task that was accomplished with the help of the entire company in a record 30 days. Just a note about George Lyall. He was a longtime employee of Eastern. He was born in Texas in 1924. He enlisted in the U.S. Army in June 1943. His behavior and courage in the battles in which he participated in the north of France, Rhineland, and the Battle of the Bulge earned him numerous honors, including the Purple Heart. George was a private first class in a tank destroyer battalion of the U.S. Army and was the sole survivor of an attack on March 14, 1944. On Friday, March the 15th, 2013, Lyle was, for his part in helping liberate Europe, recognized by France. The Council General of France in Miami awarded George the insignia of Chevalier and the Order of the Legion of Honor. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in Cabin 2 just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York. Eastern's Transcon. Have you ever wondered where the aircraft of the Eastern Airlines fleet are today? Of course, many left for the desert aircraft boneyards of Arizona, New Mexico, and California many years ago. However, there are some still displaying the logo of this once great airline. Captain Steve McDonald, historian of the EAL website, EALradioshow.com, submitted the following article for the website. Today, August 2011, there are still four Eastern airliners with the correct Eastern paint scheme still flying in the USA. Most know about the DC-7 based in Miami. A few more may know about the Ford Trimotor owned by Experimental Airplane Association based at Oshkosh, Wisconsin. The Mid-Atlantic Air Museum based at Reading, Pennsylvania has Eastern's original Martin 404, November 5, a 450 Alpha. Captain Warren Jameson and I were privileged to tour through this Martin on its first outing after being restored. The Reading owners were excited to learn that Warren had been a check captain on this very airplane. There is a fourth plane still flying. It is Eastern's DC-3, November 18121. The original N number, same serial number, same great silver fleet paint job, Duckhawk on the rudder, correct passenger interior, is displayed. 
It is a step back in time. In private hands, it is based near Portland, Oregon these days and flies to air shows around the country. There are some other, more modern Eastern airplanes here and there. I know about our 727QC, which, which, which went to Federal Express after Eastern, November 8153G, George, renumbered for FedEx, sits at Jacksonville's Cecil Field in a FedEx paint scheme. It was donated to the aviation school based at Cecil Field and is today under the care of a school instructor and former National Airlines flight engineer. There are likely Eastern Airliners in other, other places that members of our family have knowledge. Let us know if you know the whereabouts of an airliner, whether derelict, storage, or even still flying. Submitted by Captain Steve McDonald. Neil. Hmm. I guess we had a failure. Going to bed. Take a shower. Going to bed. This is Jim. Jim Holder. Goodbye. The loveliness of Paris seems somehow sadly gay. The glory that was Rome is of another day. Well, I was terribly alone and forgotten in Manhattan. I'm going home to my city by the bay. I left my heart in San Francisco.
Memories of a great airline have reached the end of our broadcast tonight. We hope you enjoyed the stories as told by the Eastern family and read by Linda and Harry Lindquist and me, Neil Holland. The stories will continue with next week's broadcast of Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. If you have memories you would like presented on the air, we hope you will send them to us so they can be read and heard by the Eastern family. You can even record them on your computer's voice recorder and send them to us, and we'll include them on a future show. Send via email to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's E-Neal, N-E-A-L, Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. It must be in an MP3 or a WAV file to work with our broadcast. These are the formats that most computers use. Also, we hope you will tell your friends about these broadcasts, and if you miss one, you can always go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, that's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, and select from the episode's archive. Our Eastern theme music tells us it's about time to say goodnight, Eastern family. From Linda, Harry, and me, we'll see you at the gate next week. Good night, Eastern family.